Hey guys, and welcome to Scrubs with Attitude. This is Andrea, Juan, and Helen, speaking to y'all, the future of medicine. Before we get started, please make sure to hit that subscribe button, and if we helped you out at all today, give this podcast a big thumbs up. Now, on to the educational part of this talk. The year was 1812. The New England Journal of Medicine and Surgery first started to publish. Medical knowledge in the U.S. and in the world was limited. We had little understanding of infectious diseases, health outcomes were brutally poor, surgery was unsanitary. I mean, doctors didn't even wash their hands, let alone their instruments they used to perform surgery. There was no anesthesia, so I can't even begin to imagine what a patient would go through during an amputation. Yeah, and even after I've had thing like... 17 surgeries without pain meds afterwards, I still can't imagine what that must have felt like. Yeah, especially back then, um, I couldn't even imagine the pain during surgery, seeing as how anesthesia was a recently new thing uh, in that time period, and surgeons weren't nearly as well-trained as they are today, and most of them were illiterate, and they were pretty much just glorified butchers. But we managed to flip the script. Just two centuries later, people in the U.S. now live longer and better thanks to the advancements we were able to make due to the new instrumentation and technology in surgery. All right, guys, let's begin with the basics. Before the introduction of ether in 1846, thanks to Boston dentist William Wharton, who relieved his patient during a surgery by administering ether to a patient via a glass vial and breathing tube that is that essentially revolutionized the practice of surgery and opened up the possibility of working in the body in ways unimaginably before. There was a thing called surgery back then, I know, crazy. Let me walk you through it in four words. Bloody, unsanitary, terrifying, and fast. With no anesthesia and doctors having little to no understanding of blood clots, a minimal understanding of the anatomy, and them not realizing by cutting off this blood vessel, I'm essentially restricting the blood flow to these structures. In other words, speed was of the essence for these torturous surgeries. But what did they use, you ask? Let's start by defining what a surgical instrument is. They are specially designed tool or device during surgery or what are you doing? Okay. Or operation such as modifying biological tissue or providing access of viewing it. A long time a long time different kinds of surgical instruments and tools have been invented. Some of them are more general character than others, designed for and others are designed for a specific surgery. Accordingly, surgical instrumentation follows certain patterns, such as the description of its action it performs, for example, a scalpel and a hemostat, or they can be the name of the inventor, for example, the coach or forceps, or a compound scientific name related to the kind of surgery, for example, the tracheotome. The history of surgical instruments have been manufactured since the dawn of prehistoric time. Rough trephins for surgery, round craniotomies, were discovered in the Neolithic sites in many places. 
It is believed that they were used to by shamans to relieve evil spirits and alleviate headaches and head traumas caused by war-inflicted wounds. So on that note for the evil spirits, now you basically just take Advil. <laughs> Back then, they would just drill a hole in your head, you know, the usual. Okay, um, any comments, guys? Um, not really specifically in this area. Uh, I didn't really focus much of my research on this area of expertise. What about you, Helen? Well, the one thing that comes to mind is, like, how they used to check for pregnancy in India. They would have a pregnant woman, like, pee in a bowl, and then they would smell it. (laughs) (laughs) That's, like, the only thing that, like, brings that up. Yeah. Today, that's just a fetish, you know? (laughs) So, yeah, there were really weird things that they thought worked, but... Really, they just made people kill each other. (laughs) Okay, in the antiquity, surgeons and physicians in Greece and Rome developed many ingenuous instruments manufactured from bronze, iron, and silver, such as scalpels, lancets, tweezers, and forceps, probes, dilators, tubes, surgical knives, etc. You get the point. They are still very well preserved in several medical museums around the world. Most of these instruments contributed to medieval times. Um, Let's move on to the Renaissance and post-Renaissance era. The new instruments were, again, invented and designed in order to accompany the increased audacity of surgeons. Amputations sets originated in this period due to the increased severity of war-inflicted wounds by shot and cannon. All right, so there was basically three parts of history that you can like really point out, which is number one, the surgeon uses a common tool or adapts it for use in the operation. Some ancient sources of such tools are are weapons, butcher's tools, as Juan mentioned, they were glorified butchers, carpenters, leather workers, and metal workers implements. This process still continues with tools coming out of automobile shops, aerospace workplaces, kitchens, etc. So, surgeons pretty much used working men things. Number two, there is a period of transference and incremental improvement, generally focusing on materials, which must be non-toxic, durable, and dur- durable, sorry. Blood tends to corrode, and the repeated washing and sterilizing of surgical instruments tend to quickly destroy many materials. Other materials hold stains and bacteria, which we can't have in surgery because you don't want someone's old bacteria or stains, you know, messing up your surgery. And number three, there is a period of standardization. However, in modern times, surgeons are also designing instruments from scratch. So yeah, guys, that's basically how, you know, how instruments came to be and how... How they were used in surgery. How they were used in surgery, yeah. Yeah, that's history. Wow, interesting little tidbit. We've been talking about history too long. Now let's look at a doctor's perspective from our friend Helen. Hey, Helen here. I'm not a doctor, but I interviewed one. (laughs) Sorry, interviewee. (laughs) 
Anyway, so I asked um, one of my personal surgeons a series of questions and he responded via email. So I'll be reading those off. Question one. Are there any instances where you may have had to resort to older surgical techniques due to unforeseen complications? If so, what would be a hypothetical scenario? His answer. Though not frequently, we do resort to older techniques. Many of our techniques have evolved somewhat. No. But most haven't <laughs> really changed <laughs> in over a century. We do do more cases with the laparoscope, video surgery, but the cases are the same. A scenario where we would convert to an older would be an event of a severe perforated duodenal ulcer. Those are very rare now since there are many types of medicines that prevent ulcers. Question two was, have you mixed older surgical techniques with newer ones? If so, how? An example? We do mix some older techniques with newer ones. Again, the laparoscopic surgery, adapting old procedure to perform them via a laparoscopic has evolved. Anti-reflux procedures and colonostectomies are the best examples. Question three. Have you ever found yourself stumped in the middle of a surgery due to what you found once you opened the person up? Yes, as surgeons, we do often find ourselves stumped in surgery from time to time. Fortunately, we have experience and partners. We have been trained to problem solve during surgery and come up with solutions. We often can merge several different techniques to come up with a solution. Question four. What types of surgery do you perform? Pediatric surgeons perform many different types of surgery. We are the last true general surgeons. I perform intestinal, thoracic, head, and neck. Urology, congenital abnormalities, and cancer surgery. Question five. Is there a specific surgical technique that you consider your go-to? If so, what is it? I presume you're asking what procedure I do the best. I think I'm really proficient at hernia repair and laparoscopic anti-reflux procedures, though I'm comfortable with almost any case I do. Question six. What is the longest surgery you have ever done? The longest surgery case I have ever been involved with took 12 hours. Question seven. What is the typical routine slash procedure for most of your surgeries? Our most routine surgeries are hernias, gastro, 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 gastrostomy, yeah, gast, gastrostomy tubes, epididectomy, <laughs> removal of the appendix, and cholestostectomies, the removal of the gallbladder. Both of those he performed on Ooh. me. Kinky. Shut up, Juan. <laughs> Question eight. How has surgery changed, if at all, during your time practicing? Surgery has changed significantly since I started. We are able to treat more diseases non-operatively. We do more cases with the laparoscope. In 
interventional radiology has been quite has made quite a few of the really difficult procedures that we do obsolete, which is a good thing. How do you keep up with the new surgical techniques? I actually do at least 30 hours of continuing medical education per year. Last year, I did over 100 hours. Surgeons have to recertify and take a test and pass it every 10 years. I also attend conferences and read medical journals. As surgeons, we're always studying and reading about the latest study or technique. Question 10. Roses are red, blood is two. If you had a choice, would you recommend a young person to do surgery like you? I would recommend surgery as a career to anyone who likes to work with their hands, think on their feet, and lose a lot of sleep. It's not for everyone, but if you really like what you're doing and don't mind working hard, it's a great career. Thank you to Dr. Kevin Kadeski for participating in this interview. Well, that ends the interview. Now here's Juan talking about new surgery. Thanks, Helen. Ever since the first person ever cut into another person for the purpose of trying to correct some health problem, whether it be removing an organ or stitching up a wound, stuff like that, there's always been room for improvement. Obviously, people can't just stick to cutting into other people with dirty hands and rusty instruments. There has to be some room for betterment. And that's clearly been obvious throughout the years. Obviously, something we've already talked about um, is in the Victorian era when pretty much glorified human butchers would just cut people's legs off and arms off with no thought over uh, germs, which, fun fact, they called the wee beasties back then. Bees. Because they, yeah. That's so cute. <laughs> yeah, it kind of gave something really pathogenic of a funny little name because they didn't take it seriously back then that's why they didn't wash their hands people that wash their hands actually got insulted that's kind of a tangent but they're called uh hand washers in like a mean tone of voice anyway back to what i was saying so um so yeah that's pretty much how surgery was back then and like i was saying there had to be improvement and that's where eventually people like Joseph Lister and Ignaz Semmelweis started to come up with revolutionary, well, not exactly revolutionary, but better ways of performing. And which is why today standard procedures, washing hands, sterilization, et cetera, et cetera. And that would eventually lead us out of the industrial age into the more modern age in the 20th century, where, like I said before, this is kind of more or less what we see today. Um, obviously, there weren't things like laparoscopic surgeries or minimally invasive surgery, but that would come later. Think more end of the 20th century, earlier, early 21st century, which kind of leads us to today. Today, we have very, very low, I'd say, rates of death due to infection. And that, like I said before, has a lot to do with new techniques and processes brought into surgery. So where do we go from here? Well, with what we have today, such as, like I said, laparoscopic surgery and minimally, I can't talk, I'm sorry. It's okay. <laughs> minimally invasive surgery, uh, the only place to go is upwards, I'd say, with so many technological advances continuously being brought into the operating room with increasing use of robots and teleoperating systems and virtual environments. Uh, the fusion of robotics and three-dimensional imaging technology is really 
what we're geared towards. It's where we're heading. And NASA actually is planning to uh, create teleoperating systems and telesurgery that would allow the operator to perform surgery from a remote site. With instances like this and examples like this, we can really start to think about... We can really think about how instrumentation and other processes can really play a role. For example, there's an intelligent surgical knife called the eye knife that was developed by Zoltan uh, Tackett of Imperial College in London. It works by using an old technology where an electrical current heats tissue to make incisions with minimal blood loss. With the eye knife, a mass spectrometer analyzes the vaporized smoke to detect the chemicals in the biological sample. <laughs> Andrea just hit a... Never mind. <laughs> this means it can identify whether the tissue is malignant in real time. This is especially useful in detecting cancer in its early stages and thus shifting cancer treatment towards prevention. It's things like this that are really helping and contributing to the future and betterment of surgery and, uh, for our society. Um, while surgical uh, sterilization doesn't really have anywhere to go, I mean, I wouldn't say we perfected it, but it could be improved. There isn't really any, or at least too much research on how it could be uh, dramatically improved on like a, a big scale. I don't know if that's the proper wording for it. Um, organ transplants artificial organs are going to become a thing in the future um, where waiting lists are going to become a lot smaller. And in regards to surgery, there are a lot of new processes and techniques in um, surgeries today that are being implemented to lower any potential risk of any microbial infections. And this is really fascinating to me. What about, what about to you guys? I mean, yeah, from the start, we just had like metal scalpels and like we had saws, but not really for cutting bone type saws. And now you hear about robotic surgery and how the doctor doesn't even have to be in the same room to perform it. It's really fascinating how in just two centuries we've evolved this much in saving people. That's actually something I kind of wanted to bring up. Um, With the surgeries that they do today using cameras and remote controls, that's actually another thing that they're trying to improve with the camera because it's a lot hard, it's pretty hard to control like a small camera and there usually has to be, in some cases, a second operator. Um, and so they're working on improving that too to make it just like a camera inside the body with a 3D view that can be controlled outside of the body without having to be physically moved. Unless there's something already like that. Can't really tell. Anyway, sorry. It's fine. I was just going to say how, how big scars and like incisions used to be. They used to be like 8, 10 inches long on the abdomen or back or knee or whatever. And now they can be like just a couple of centimeters and or maybe one centimeter here, or one centimeter there and be done. And I, I remember one time you said that you had starting out your 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 journey with surgeries, like you had bigger incisions. And then as you got it's bad that you got more, but it's good that they've improved everything. Like now you say you have smaller incisions. Could you explain that a little? So my first um surgery was a lads procedure and I only had four five um centimeter inch incisions and then I had to have um a more invasive surgery and I got an eight inch incision and then after that I got an uh or a four inch incision sorry and then I got an eight inch incision but lately it's just been small centimeter incisions that they just need to kind of poke in check unravel stuff so 
Yeah. And I mean, that's like in our lifetime. Now imagine in, I don't know, 20, 30 years from now, what all they could advance. Yeah, it's funny to actually think about like within 100 years, how much change could happen. Yeah. Like 1918 versus 2018. Like, <laughs> wow, guys. Gee, <laughs> 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 All right, uh, so now I'm going to hand this off to Andrea for some final statements. Uh. So, yeah, guys, this is Andrea speaking again. Um, from the start of history of medical instruments, surgery, there has been so much improvement. I mean, I've even mentioned that doctors didn't wash their hands, their instruments, and then Juan mentioned that what'd you say about washing it was looked down upon yeah. and and that's just imagine your doctor going into your stomach and not washing his hands and just pulling out something that's uh that's and like now everybody washes their hands multiple it, times it's a, a few minutes if you do not then you have to learn how to wash your hands you will be soon actually like, <laughs> yeah. yeah before you do anything yeah. you need to wash your hands i mean that's what we've been learning about in pathogenic diseases and there's like certain techniques just washing your hands oh yeah just like i mean up. we learned in blevins class how to surgically scrub our hands and even that has way like, too many well not way too many because it protects it's us a process, yeah. yeah it's it's a long process yeah and then this fact that they have to do it really quick too yeah oh yeah and if they mess up they have to start all over again <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. sucks but i mean obviously it's necessary for like yeah. obviously they don't want to kill patients just because you didn't wash your hands and what i think is interesting is that eventually there's going to be at least I think there's going to be a way to not bypass, but I feel like eventually there's going to be some machine or some technology Easier. that you're going to be able to yeah, use to, to like, like completely sterilize your hands and arms. Maybe not in the next like ten years, but maybe bit, before bit, I yeah. before, before, <laughs> before we're dead. Yeah. Before yeah. Before we're dead. So, so I mean, instrumentation technology has played such tremendous role in surgery medicine. And I'm, I'm glad. Yeah, life. I mean, half of us wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for them. Yeah. So. To conclude, I'd say it's probably a great time to be alive in regards to surgery. Like, obviously, we can take a lot more punishment and be more likely to die than we were, like, many years ago. Like, back in, like, Victorian era, going to the hospital was a death sentence. And today... Oh, yeah. Today, while it can be a death sentence, there are a lot more ways to stop it from being that. Completely. Yeah. It's more like a routine, routine thing. Like, oh, my child has a fever. Let's go to the ER. Yeah, exactly. It isn't much of a burden anymore. <laughs> yeah, but on the downside of that, we have... Because we overuse everything... Um, understaffed and yeah we are understaffed and i mean the medical field is growing and i encourage y'all to go in it yeah baby boomers are leaving (laughs) and we gotta stay bro (laughs) all right anyway swa Uh, signing out bye you